You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Okay, so the Lord's Supper, um, we're looking here. It is, uh, as you know, a very important part of Christian worship, so much so that it is one of the marks of a true church. If we don't do the Lord's Supper according to Scripture, then it would be a false church. I'm just going to turn this down slightly. It's kind of a reverb. I think I heard that. So the way we administer the Lord's Supper is vitally important, and it is in itself a very important part of Christian worship. It is a sign and seal of union and communion with Jesus Christ. We are united to Christ by the Spirit and faith, and we commune with Him in a very special, real, mystical way. It does represent and it exhibits salvation through his once-for-all perfect sacrifice. So every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, as it says in Scripture, we proclaim the Lord's death. Thomas Watson says the Lord's Supper is a visible sermon, wherein Christ crucified is set before us. I'm reminded of what Paul said, you know, I determined to know nothing among you but Christ crucified. Um, And that was an important thing for him to say because as a scholar, Paul had all sorts of things that he would study. And he understood that the whole counsel of God is vitally important. But he was determined to hold forth Christ crucified as the Savior of sinners. So what is foremost in this sacred meal is the remembrance of the Lord's death on the cross. There's all kinds of other things that are implicit and even his resurrection and his return, but foremost is the Lord's death. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there we have a summation. Um, The supper is vitally important. It brings honor to the crucified Christ. It holds before us the once-for-all atonement for our sins, the only hope for fallen mankind. And it signifies and it seals to us, and we're going to talk more about sealing in a minute, but it signifies and seals to believing participants all the benefits of his atoning sacrifice, all the blessings that accrue because he died in our place. It represents and vividly pictures these benefits, and it shows us what we possess as Christians Lloyd-Jones, in the book we're studying, his men constantly is directing us to the objective reality of who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ, which is so important. And the supper helps us every week to realign our thoughts and to think about who we are in Christ. We possess all things. One of the most amazing statements in Scripture, to my mind, is the fact that he says we are fellow heirs with Christ. Think of that. He is the Son of God and the heir of heaven. And God made us fellow heirs with Christ, on par with Jesus Christ. The supper signifies that. 
It's God's solemn oath assuring us of the, the great salvation that belongs to us in Christ. As if his word is not enough, which it is enough, when God says it, it's true. That should be enough. But because of our weakness, he condescends to our weakness and he gives us an oath. It's as if he's saying, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. This is true. You know, <clears throat> I think I got that wrong, but that, you get the idea. And it represents the work that God continues to do in us as believers in Jesus Christ. He is sanctifying us, and he promised us that he will present us through Jesus as blameless and holy before his presence. So this is a process. The supper is an ongoing testimony of what God will do and is doing in our hearts and our lives. By partaking of the cup of blessing and the bread, we participate in Christ's body and blood. So we reflect him. We, um, Joyce was asking a question the other day about um, fulfilling the sufferings of Christ. It's a great question. And the idea is that it's not meritorious. His once-for-all death is enough to pay the price for all our sins. But as his body, he's our head, as the body, we reflect him. And as he suffered, we suffered. As he's glorified, we're glorified. So we participate. And he is within us. It teaches that Christ is the only bread by which our souls live. And that the New Testament is now in full force. Everything that was anticipated by the prophets is now in place. It's an amazing thing. Questions or comments before I move on? This is just preliminary. Okay? So section one, we're only going to go through four sections, and I anticipate spending two weeks on the supper, so we have time. Our Lord Jesus, on the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood, called the Lord's Supper. So as the king and the head of the church, he has authority to institute ordinances for his people. He has that authority. We don't. If we think something's good in worship, it's too bad. We don't have the authority. It has to be instituted by our king. He has the authority to institute ordinances, and he instituted the Lord's Supper. He did it at the Passover meal on the night before he was crucified and betrayed. And it implies that the one gave way to the other. For centuries, the Jewish people, God's people, had been observing the Passover meal, which was a sacrament of the Old Testament that pointed forward to the work of Jesus Christ. Now we have the Lord's Supper, a bloodless sacrament, because his once-for-all sacrifice was the only blood that was needed. We see this in the, the initiatory sacrament as well. It goes from circumcision, which was a bloody sacrament, to baptism, which is bloodless. There's no need for blood. His precious blood has been shed. So the one, the Passover meal, the angel of death, passing over the Israelite children, pointing forward to Christ, whose blood enables us to be spared, that gives way to the Lord's Supper. And it was under the shadow of the cross, remember. He pressed on in his mission and he loved his own to the end. When he instituted this meal, 
that shadow of the cross was looming large on the horizon. He would die the next day. On that very night, he was betrayed by one of his own disciples, and he was denied by another. He was unjustly tried. He was delivered up by the Jews, and he was condemned by Pilate, the governor. He would be tormented by a great number of Roman soldiers. Um, We're not sure, but there may have been even hundreds, 600 soldiers at one time. And he would suffer under God's infinite wrath. He knew all that. He knew exactly what was going to happen, and yet in spite of his imminent sufferings, he instituted this sacred ordinance. And so in his darkest hour, Jesus remembered us, and at the Lord's Supper, should we not remember him? A little exhortation. He had us in mind. He loved his own, and he did so to the end. This is my body, which is for you. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So at this supper, it takes an act of faith, intelligent faith, that we think about the Lord Jesus, the night in which he was betrayed, when he suffered under the infinite wrath of God. We think of this every time we take the supper. We do it in remembrance of him. Any questions on these statements. Any comments? Okay? Good? We continue. Section 1 is probably one of the most important ones of this chapter. We'll have several slides on this one. How long and for what reason? It's to be observed in his church unto the end of the world. So this is evident from the words of institution. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, we do this for him in remembrance of him. I'm trying to figure out why I put that one in there. I think it was, later we'll get to the one where it says, till he comes, but we'll see that in a minute. The apostolic example, that is a pattern for the whole New Testament church. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. This was something to which they devoted themselves. They practiced every time they came together. Now, the scriptures don't mandate how often you do this. Uh, It does talk about being often, frequently. But if this is something to which they devoted themselves, we would think that it would be frequent. And I'm thankful that we have the privilege of being able to do it weekly. But the apostolic example is a pattern. They did it. The New Testament epistles assume the ongoing observation of the supper in the New Testament church. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I think the words of institution, it's a command. That's what I was thinking. It's a command that he gives the entire church. So the whole New Testament church, the entire inter-advental era, that command stands. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus' command, the apostolic example, the New Testament epistles, we are to observe the Lord's Supper. And historically, in God's providence, the supper has been observed by the New Testament church since the time it was instituted. There has never been a time when God didn't have a witness on earth for himself. It is obligatory upon all Christians until the end of time. So it is a privilege. We talk about this with children. It's a privilege to take the supper. 
what a privilege it is to have all the blessings of the covenant exhibited and sealed to you. These belong to you. What a privilege. But it is a duty. It's a duty to stand and to swear allegiance to Christ. It's a duty to bear witness to our King. It's a duty to confess Him before men. Where do we do that? Publicly, formally, officially, consistently at the Lord's Supper. So this is important because I think one of the things people get confused on is when, sh- when and if I shouldn't take it. I've had a bad week. I've fallen into sin just about every day. It's my besetting sin. I've really struggled. I probably shouldn't take the supper this week. Wrong. First of all, you need the supper for that very reason. Second of all, you don't have the authority to determine who takes and who doesn't. Right? You didn't have the authority to determine if you could take it to begin with. What did you do? You were interviewed or examined by the session. The session said, you have an intelligent, credible profession of faith. You're admitted to the table. That's the key of the kingdom. You don't have that key. I don't have that key individually. So you can't absent yourself from the supper because you feel like a sinner. You have a duty to take the supper. Your responsibility and my responsibility is to repent. (laughs) Somebody said recently, yeah, we have it every week, so i got to repent every week? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. When it's quarterly, you only have to repent once a quarter, right? No, that's not true. So it's obligatory. It's a privilege and a duty. Very important. And of course, if you have had a bad week, and we all do, we all fall into sin, God has instituted this meal for that very purpose, to give you strength, to assure you of salvation. Yes, you've fallen, but God is rich in mercy. He extends it to you. And look what he says in his gospel, and look how he confirms it in his supper. It's for you. It's for sinners. The section goes on, for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself and his death. So we commemorate the death of Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promise of salvation. Genesis 3.15. He'll bruise your head, you'll bruise his heel. Fulfilled thousands of years later, but fulfilled. The champion came. He's fulfilled uh, the promise of God. He satisfied those awful demands of justice, which requires our death as sinners. He fulfilled it. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. His death is held forth. What does it say in Ecclesiastes? The day of death is better than the day of birth. Did you ever think about that? For many reasons. For Jesus, because it's our salvation. For the Christian, because it means heaven. Um, We celebrate birthdays, which is fine. It's not wrong. I think it's wonderful. But the day of death is better. We see Jesus face to face. The bread represents his body. The cup represents his blood, both of which signify our covenant benefits. In Christ, we have all the blessings of the covenant. The covenant, this solemn commitment that God made with his people. All the things that he promised to give us. Healing, peace, 
righteousness, joy, eternal life, all things. These are the blood of the covenant, the bread we break, and the cup of blessing. Any questions on these things? Any comments? Okay. Julia? Actually, um, maybe Jason talked about this last week. I know I was out with a child at the time, but um, with Psalm 23, or whenever he preached on that, the table in the presence of our enemies is kind of like the Lord's table. You know, Jesus led our enemies in triumphal procession when he died and rose again. And so when we eat, we are, like, we are coming to that table that he's prepared for us in the presence of those that he's defeated in his yeah. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't know that, you know, David was explicitly prophesying that sort of thing, but it's something that we can connect. Absolutely. I think you're right. It has significance. And, and uh, Jason was talking about how the green pastures, you know, and how that's fulfilled in this marvelous feast that we have every single Sunday. I thought it was an excellent point. And then he gets down to the table, and you're right. There's this connection with the supper. We can see it visibly. You know, this, this fallen world thinks, at, at best, thinks we're just irrelevant and weird. But they do not like us because we're separate. And it's in the midst of our enemies that we feast, feast upon Christ. It's for the sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers. So the meal confirms to us our right and privilege as true Christians, as heirs of the covenant. It's your right. You know, some of the Puritans used to pray, and some, someone in our generation might think they were a little presumptuous. God, you promised, it's ours. Not, not, irre, not irreligious, not disrespectfully, but we believe him. This is ours. We have the right and the privilege to be heirs of the covenant, An heir receives the inheritance. It's like the seal affixed to a deed that gives a person the right and privilege to own property, right? So when you get the deed and it's got the seal on it, you know it's official. That property is yours. You have every right to walk over there and walk around the property and put something on it. It's yours. It's sealed to you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's sealing to you that you're a member of the new covenant. You're an heir of heaven. You belong in Christ. And all those blessings are yours. Yes, you've had a rough week. God's rich in mercy. He has saved you. He's sanctifying you. And these belong to you. So the covenant of grace is sealed by the blood of Christ, which is represented by the cup. It's offered to Christians. It ratifies Christ's promise. That word ratify, it authorizes. It ratifies his promise to save us on the condition of faith. Which is his gift also, by the way. So it's all of grace, right? So what the Lord's Supper signifies is all the blessings in Christ, and it seals it to you as a believer in Christ. It's a visible, tangible confirmation of the blessings and the benefits and the privileges of redemption. Every time we partake of the supper, this is signified to you. 
It goes on for our spiritual nourishment and growth in him. A believing participation, and notice that's intentional. It is a believing participation. And the Lord's Supper strengthens faith by the power of God's Spirit. I have no idea how he does that, but he does. <clears throat> we take God at his word. Okay, if we do this according to Scripture, and we do it in faith, you said that you'll strengthen our faith. Okay, we do it. That's what the Bible teaches. It's more than a mere memorial, and this is so prevalent in our culture that it's just, okay, it's just kind of like a, a symbol. That's it. The Spirit is present to bless and to convey grace through this means. That's what we're taught. It's a means of grace. So something more is taking place in the supper than simply remembering him, although we do that. It's not just a memorial. It's, we call it the real or the spiritual presence of Christ. It's the Spirit of Christ who is present to bless our participation in this meal. And in some remarkable, mystical, supernatural, yet real way, he conveys grace. John? Um, how does, uh, is this now just any Old Testament ideas on giving, like sacrificing a lamb where the lamb itself doesn't have, uh, it is the, the la- sacrificing the lamb is not for grace. And it's not just a remembrance pointing to God. There's something that happens, but it's not. It's God amongst the thing. Yeah. I'm trying to see the same idea. Theological the, yeah. continuity. The same idea took place with the Old Testament ordinances. So for that time, those ordinances were sufficient to build them up in grace. And they trusted in the forthcoming Christ through those ordinances. So you're right. Something more was taking place than simply pointing to Christ. These were means of grace in the Old Testament. So the Spirit was present and active and at work in those ordinances to bring in, well, they were in the people, but I mean to convert, to convince, to comfort, to build up. The Spirit was at work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Julie, or Rihanna? Uh, being at Redeemer is the first time that I was taught about like, the participating and like, the strengthening of faith and stuff. And that was such an encouragement to me, which made me want hunger for it more each week. Like, I actually look forward to this um, participating. But it's such a picture of how graceful God is because even when you are participating in a church that doesn't necessarily. Um, you know, bring this idea. It's like God is still doing that yeah. those believers, which is so yeah. cool and awesome. Yeah, he's so gracious. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the question being that even if we as a church didn't teach this, God would do this. Yeah, he's very gracious. Extremely so. Rob? I kept thinking that somebody was going to say sacramental union somewhere in the last answers to the last couple questions. Am I confusing the sacramental union concept? No, no, and I'm glad you brought that up. We, we talked about that uh, in the sacraments in general, but you're right. There's such a close connection between the sign and this thing signified. Yeah. So we're not literally and only drinking wine and eating bread. There's the spiritual element that is joined in this, this with the, under the label sacrament. Yeah, we're actually communing with the Lord. There is this idea that the Spirit of Christ is present 
meeting us, joining us together in this, this act, this uh, sacrament, so that we actually have intimate communion, fellowship. Is there a sense that we are, for all intents and purposes, at the table at which this was originally instituted? We might as well have been sitting there. Because there's nothing we're not getting from what right. in the bowl. No, it, what he said at that table applies equally as well at the table here. Absolutely. You're right. And, you know, this is part of the glue that, that holds us together. Um, you know, there's been the parallel between the intimacy of a marriage and the supper of the church. And I think it's true that God brings the two together and he provides this gift of intimacy, which continues this fellowship, this most intimate uh, fellowship with spouses. It's the same thing here. It's this intimacy that we have. So it's not just an act. There's far more to it, you know, that we're communing with Christ. He's strengthening us. He's developing our graces. It's a proclamation of the crucified Christ for the world to see. God never leaves himself without witness. So there's so many things going on. But for the Christian, it is an amazing thing. For the non-Christian, for the unbeliever, for the hypocrite who takes the supper It's the very opposite. It's a sign of judgment. And for those of us who would presume to do this contrary to Scripture or with a wrong motive, 1 Corinthians tells us that some are sick and some have died. So, you know, there is responsibility involved, but it really is a blessing. Such participation not only strengthens our faith, it inflames our love, it deepens our repentance, it enhances our joy, it enlarges one's heart. You know, David says, enlarge my heart and I'll run after you. And he acknowledges the need for the Spirit to open up the heart so I can keep God's commandments. It directs the gaze of our faith toward the coming of Christ and the blessings of heaven. He makes that promise. I'll eat this with you and drink this with you in my Father's kingdom. I'm not going to do it until then. I'm coming again. I'll take you home. It's a promise. Any other questions on sealing or nourishment? Nate? Are there, do you have any other illustrations for this, like this seal? Um, and I'm trying to figure out, so you have the seal affixed to the deeds for the right yeah it no it's a good question I think um, you know and we have examples in scripture like um, Artaxerxes and Esther he's sending out the decree to all his provinces and he the ring, you know, that kind of thing. But it's also, think of it as God's oath. Think of it as uh, first our Genesis 15, where God tells Abraham, okay, divide the animals, I'm going to walk through. And he walks through, and it's kind of like, what I promised you, this is my oath. So it's an oath ceremony. It's, it's God reaffirming his oath in his word, to give us salvation. At the same time, it's a covenant renewal where we reaffirm our allegiance to Christ. So it's that idea of an oath ceremony. Mark, did you want to add something to that? I was just going to say, every time we see a rainbow, we 
that. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Very good, very good example. It's it's that oath. Yeah. And I think that's important. I think uh, Pastor Pylon got on this last, I think last week, maybe the week before. This idea that it's more objective, God's oath, than our expression of faith, although it's both. So I think in our tradition we look at it from the vantage point of heaven more than earth, that it's God confirming it, you know. Greg? Would you say that just on our end, the, the repetition of it, the regular repetition of it, is just I mean, analogous, just because we're human and we need the reminder more than anything else, right? It's like not that God needs to keep promising. Right. I guess one time it's done, it's like here it is, but for us it's continual remembrance. Yeah, exactly. That's a very good point. I mean, he knows our weakness. That's exactly the reason uh, he condescends to us. You know, not only does he lisp to us, I mean, he's so far above us, that, but he also just encourages and confirms over and over and over again. And it's the idea of communion, that we need to be in communion with Jesus Christ. You know, um, Pete had a, a quote from, um, was it the first Helvetic, second Helvetic? Second Helvetic Confession. And it's this idea of eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. And when he talked about that, all the disciples left because they were freaked out. Are you, what are you, a cannibal? And the idea is that we have this communion with Christ and eating and drinking is likened to receiving into your heart, trusting in him, relying upon him. And so we are to be encouraged to do that week after week after week, you know, throughout our entire life. We need it. I need it. I know I speak for all of us, I think. For their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him. This is part of the reason for the Lord's Supper. It's been described, as we talked a moment ago, as a covenant renewal ceremony. The covenant, this solemn commitment that God made, it's renewed. God reaffirms his promise to his people and we reaffirm our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where sacrament comes from. It used to be a military oath of the Roman soldiers. You, you swear fealty to your general. It's an oath of heavenly citizenship. It's a badge of Christian profession. It's a vow of covenant fidelity. This badge, you wear the badge of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The covenant badges. It distinguishes you. That's another reason for the supper. You know, I was reading this morning how God sent um, the flies on Egypt, right? He sends the flies on Egypt and they cover everything except Goshen. Why? Well, because it says he wanted to distinguish his people from Egypt. Distinguishing his people. He does that. He loves to distinguish those who belong to him. So baptism distinguishes you as a member. The Lord's Supper is this distinction of you as an ongoing member communing with Christ. It acknowledges Jesus as our master. We reaffirm our pledge to observe all that he commanded. We admit that we don't belong to ourselves. <laughs> don't belong to ourselves. Uh, Jason and I are reading a book. You are not your own. Our culture wants to say we belong to ourselves. We, we define our own identity. No. That's a huge burden that we can't bear. We belong to Christ. This shows that. We admit that. 
He purchased us with his blood. Through believing participation, we bind ourselves anew to glorifying God and enjoying him forever. So every week, we reaffirm this is our purpose in life. We need that every week. And to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body, it's an intimate fellowship with Christ as we feed upon him spiritually. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That word is koinonia. Right? We've heard that so often. You're participating, you're communing, you're fellowshipping. It's, it's truly remarkable. And the catechism uses language like this is real, this is mystical and spiritual, yet real and true. So sometimes it's hard to believe. It also confirms our fellowship with one another as equal members of the mystical body. So every time we partake of that supper, what we're doing is affirming that we're members of one another. So if you have something against your brother or sister, put down your worship, your sacrifice, go make things right. So you can't, you don't have the option not to love those with whom you take the supper, right? We don't have that option. Yeah, somebody rubs you the wrong way, somebody offends you, somebody's insensitive. Um, But love covers a multitude of sins on the one hand. At the same time, if it's severe enough, you go make it right. You don't have an option. It's sort of like what we said earlier. You have to repent, right? You have to repent of all known sin before you partake of the supper. Go make it right. That's one of the reasons why weekly communion is so helpful. You can't take the supper and be at odds. Derek? Yeah, Pado communion is the belief that everybody, even infants and children, should take the supper. And I think one of the, if I understand it correctly, now <clears throat> I'm not a Pado communionist, so this is how I understand it. But they believe that you can't deny any of the covenant members the ordinances of the church. So if you deny them the Lord's Supper, you're withholding from them grace that's due them. Not because they merited it, but because God wants to give it to them. And what we understand is that the two sacraments are different. They're they're similar in some ways. They differ in other ways. The baptism is a passive sacrament. Lord's Supper is an active sacrament. It requires faith. Take. Eat. It's active, right? So what we understand is that God brings in the children through baptism. We teach them to observe all that he commanded. And at the age of maturity, whatever that would be for each child, they profess their faith and they become a communing member. So I think, and again, there may be other reasons, but I think the pedo communion position would say, well, you're, you're denying the children what they deserve as covenant members. But I believe God can give our children all the grace they need through the means that they're capable of using. In other words, you can get all the grace you need through the word. You don't have to have the supper to be saved. You don't have to have the supper to be built up in grace. It's a wonderful thing. It is our duty. So in God's providence, when we have the opportunity, we should partake. But you don't have to have it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mark. I was, 
I was going to bring this up at the right time. Why do, why do we want somebody to become a member, a communicative member, before taking the union? Um, as I was growing up, um, the institution, uh, take, eat, remember, and believe uh, was, was issued. And remember and believe, you know, a right. cannot do that. Right. Um, they, they, can't, they can't make that credible distinction. They haven't sought forgiveness. They haven't made their heart right and that's why because we, we've had some people who said why, why do you require baptism before it doesn't say that in the Bible does it you have a verse for that yeah well you know it's interesting the great commission how do we make disciples well you first baptize them and then you teach them and in our culture we turn that around we teach them and then at some point we baptize them I think the order is significant. So, yes, we acknowledge them, we bring them in. Uh, it is a badge of the covenant. God wants to distinguish his children's children. He loves his children's children. So they're distinguished. They're privileged. They have the covenant. Isaac? Another big one is uh, Paul's warning. He eats and drinks a certain amount of body. He and drinks judgment unto himself. Excellent point. Really difficult thing to have to young Excellent point. Yeah, very good. Examine yourself. Right. That's a very good point. John? Well, I was thinking of the related to the Passover in the Old Testament. And I believe, if I'm correct, children would take Passover. It's debated. Um, and then, I can't imagine them stuffing lamb down an infant's throat. I, I said, there's a specific age in which they probably would start to, to start right. take the Passover. Right. Um, but um, then also the, the, the kind of question arises at what age then is communion I, I've heard like similar like maybe five, six, seven, being able to actually say I love Jesus mm -hmm. then around like 8, 9, 10 being able to have some understanding and then in the teen years, 13, 14, 15 being able to, to get into uh, puberty and, and kind of understand, have more independent uh, reasoning high level reasoning yeah, I mean, oftentimes, I mean, that scenario is not uncommon. I think that, that in general, that is probably true. We've had one, I think, as, as young as eight years old. Um, we've had some older than that. But you have to remember that it's a very intimidating thing. As, as you know, we've, we've all done it, to come before five, six, seven men and profess your faith, to be examined, to be questioned. Why do you, what do you think about sin? What do you think about justification, you know? And we probably would, we, we try to tone it down a little bit for the younger. Um, but, but that's intimidating. And so what Isaac was saying is that, you know, this idea of examining yourself, there's a level of maturity that is required to partake of the supper that may be eight years old. Little Terza was mature enough. She, she surprised me. This little girl must have been this high. And she walks into the library. I'm like, this is going to be a disaster. I don't want to scar her. You know? Well, she, she stopped my mouth. I was like, whoa. It was incredible. And so um, it may be 8, it may be 15. But the idea is you come before men. You profess your faith. You have the courage and the wherewithal to stand for Christ. Not everybody can do that. I'm calling you Julia. That's your daughter. Um, I wasn't going to bring this up because I was waiting to see if we were getting to like age and more stuff, but 
speaking. You have a very shy personality child who does profess faith and does that way. You're trying to encourage them to go before the session. How much do you push because that person doesn't have the courage yet? Um, are they ready then to partake? Do you feel like it's okay to say, hey, we're as parents, we're going to keep encouraging you, try to make you, yeah. but at the same time not pressure them. Right. You know, as a mom, I feel a little bit more like, okay, you know, if you know that this is what you believe, then go for it, but they're not, you know, socially ready or something. Right. What would you do in that well, it's hard. I can't give you a blanket answer. It's hard. <clears throat> every I know. <laughs> every every child's different. I mean, we, we we encourage them. You know, this is part of the progression in your faith that you come before men. Parents can come with their children. We, we don't mind parents. <laughs> we had one. This was years and years ago. We had one guy come, and uh, I think his child must have been, I don't know, seven or eight. And we were kind of wary at that point anyway. And uh, he answered half the questions. He would not let it. I mean, it was just so bizarre. And at one point we had to say, look, you, you need to be quiet. This is for your son, not for you. So that was pushing. You know, he really wanted, he was big into the, you know, accomplishments and stuff like that. But I think there is a balance you have to strike between encouraging and, and pushing. You can't push them into it because kids naturally want to please their parents. We want this to be something that they embrace for themselves. Do you believe it's wrong if someone, could you, would you communicate to a teen, like an early teen, that it is, could be wrong? If like your personality or the things that are hard for you prevent you from going for it, would you encourage them that it could be wrong if you didn't do this? At some point it will be wrong. It's a, yeah. At some point, it will be wrong. Now, <clears throat> yeah, when is the right time? I mean, we do a good job, I think, of meeting beforehand and kind of tempering it a little bit. And uh, we've even had a point, and I don't, think, I don't think Lisa would mind me saying this. When Lisa first came, she was bipolar. Crowds scared her. And so Session decided that <clears throat> five men would be too much. I think we had two. Two men met with her. And she was able to profess her faith. And the rest of the session accepted that as, yeah. So if there's somebody who's exceptionally shy and very difficult, we can, we can work things like that. Um, Roman Catholic errors, we'll probably not get through all this, but... In this sacrament, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sins of the quick or dead, but only a commemoration of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross, once for all, and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same. So it's framed negatively, obviously, to refute the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation and the Mass doctrines. Transubstantiation, if you don't know what that is, says that the bread and the cup change into the very body, blood, soul, deity of Jesus. That bread and cup become Jesus. When the priest gives the words of institution and he prays, something miraculous takes place. Because they claim this is my body and this is my blood are to be taken literally. It is. That's what they say. 
But what's interesting is scripture often uses the being verb as a means of representing or symbolizing something else. The seven good cows are seven years. And the seven good ears are seven years. He said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So you see scripture is comfortable using that language to represent something. It's not literal. The Council of Trent said the Mass is both a sacrament and a constantly repeated bloodless sacrifice offered to God, directly contradicting the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus for sins. Neither doctrine is taught in Scripture, and the Confession goes on to say, with great tact, abominably injurious to Christ's one and only sacrifice. I love that. I think it's great. Any questions? We're going to stop here, but any comments? Okay, well, next week, hopefully we'll finish up the chapter, uh, get to some of the couple things we didn't get to here this week, and uh, hopefully it'll be good. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this amazing sacrament and the way that you use this to assure us of the truth of your promise the reality of salvation in Jesus Christ. Please prepare us for worship now. Thank you for this wonderful privilege that we enjoy on this Lord's Day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.